and welcome to another edition of the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. I'm your host, Austin Miller. We've got a full panel, full house today, as we'll be breaking down match day four from the Carnival World Cup qualifiers ahead of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Four matches down, still 14 to go in what is the best tournament in world football, but we have plenty of action to break down today. So let's get right into it. I'll introduce the panel. Joining me, as always, seemingly, is our Chilean football expert based in Santiago, Adam Brandon. Adam, how are you doing today? Great slate of matches last night. Yeah, um, a little bit a little bit more downbeat than I was uh, when we recorded this pod the other day. But yeah, I, overall, um, looking forward to discussing what was an incredible set of World Cup qualifiers once again. Our next guest is surely a very, very happy man today. This is our Ecuadorian football expert, Javier Zavala. Javier, there will be plenty of time to wax poetic in a few minutes. I assume the energy is good with you. You're doing well today? Ecuador siempre primero, primero nuestro corazón. No, I'm joking. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm very excited to be here. Yes, I'm super happy. I'm thrilled to get to discuss the game that we had yesterday. So I'm really looking forward to to having our discussion today. <laughs> Great to have you on, Javier. We're looking forward to your perspective. A couple of other guests joining us on the show. Our Paraguayan football expert, co-host of a Paraguayan football podcast in English, Roberto Rojas, an off-and-on guest here on the South American Football Show. Roberto, great to have you on. Great to have you back. Uh, we're certainly looking forward to your perspective. How are you doing, man? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you again for having me. Yeah, I agree. It's been too long since I've been talking to you guys. Um, yeah, I think certainly I'm not exactly feeling the same way that Javier is feeling. But uh, none of us are. None of us are, Robert. No, uh, that that's that's true. You, you don't. You won't win by that scoreline almost every day. But no, I guess let's see how it goes. Let's let's see what kind of conversation we can go in after the result that we got uh, last night. But uh, no, glad to be here. And last but certainly not least, providing a perspective that we all too often don't get on this show, it's Jordan Flora, a Venezuelan football expert, author of a book on Venezuelan football in English. Jordan, you're very welcome on the show. We're looking forward to having your perspective. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you. I uh, really appreciate you having me on. Uh, it was obviously Venezuela's first win, uh, so uh, a nice a nice time to be invited on to talk about it. Jordan, I, I have to admit... Um, on the last show, as, as we were planning out the, the podcast for, for this next, this to the show that we're recording today, um, your name was brought up in the conversation. And, and I said, you know, when Venezuela wins a game, we'll get the Venezuelan perspective. So there you go. You got your three points. You're on the show. What more could you ask for, right? Uh, hopefully another three points at some point. But sure. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll take that. Uh, well, let's get right into it. Let's start with, I think, the result that caused a lot of raised eyes, not just in South America, but maybe around the world as well. Not simply because a inform Ecuador side took all three points against a Colombia side that have not yet showed their best, particularly not over this set of fixtures, but the manner in which they did it. Ecuador 6, Colombia 1 in Quito. It was early, it was often, and it was impressive from Ecuador. Uh, Robert Arboleda with the first goal off of a, a poor clearance from Colombia that he slapped into the, the far corner of the net to make it 1-0. And from there, the, the route was really on. Mena, two minutes later to make it 2-0. Estrada and Ariaga uh, still in the first half. 
to make it 4-0. Hamas Rodriguez, a penalty for Colombia right on halftime that at least had me thinking, all right, I need to keep half an eye on this game to see what happens to see if Colombia can get back. Get back, they could not. Ecuador scored again uh, with Plata in the later stages of the second half to make it 5-1, and then Purvis Estupinan finishing it off for 6-1. That now puts Ecuador on nine points, third place in the table. Uh, Their only poor result was the 1-0 loss on match day one to Argentina. They've now given both Uruguay and Colombia a thorough beating in Quito, And as we mentioned on the last podcast, a 3-2 result away in La Paz added to their total as well. Javier, it's hard to know really where to start with this performance. So let's just get straight into it. This was as impressive as we've seen Ecuador for quite some time. This almost felt out of character for a Gustavo Alfaro side. But this was a phenomenal performance for Ecuador. And it was everything that they could have asked for and even more, really. Like, honestly, I had to do the opposite that I did after the game with Argentina, right? After Argentina, I had to find positive sides to bring myself up. Now I have to be a little more realistic to bring myself down because everything seemed to work. Everything seemed to be perfect, right? And after last World Cup qualifiers, like four years ago, I learned my lesson, right? Like last last uh, last qualifiers, we ended up 12 out of 12 for the first four games. And we all know what happened afterwards, right? So we got to keep emotions in check. We're excited. We're positive. We're thrilled. But we have to have uh, a clear perspective of what's happening, right? So Ecuador, like for the game, everything worked for Ecuador. Like even their lowest points were pretty good, which were Pedro Perlas as a right back, which was uh, probably an experiment by Alfaro to see if we can get more out of the right back position. And Renato Ibarra, that I'm not a big fan, but he had a decent game, right? So Ecuador started with a very high line of pressure, similar to the one that we have against Uruguay and Bolivia, that prevented Colombia from building efficiently from the back. So we actually thank you for uh, thanks for that high line. We were able to recover a few a few balls uh, high in the field. Um, however, that was not the case for the second half. But I'll go. I'll get to that in a bit. Now, Ecuador was extremely superior in the aerial game and won most of the second balls throughout the game. Those two factors are very key in this game. Ecuador showed a lot of flexibility in the offensive game, and this is something that I like to highlight because. And, I, and, and by the time that I get to Alfaro, I'll go into detail of why. But like Ecuador had Estrada up top, and then he had three attacking players behind, right? So we started with Muñoz, and then he was stopped by Plata. Then we had Renato Ibarra and Angel Mena. And there was a lot of changes in between that uh, line of three, right? In which players move from right to middle, middle to left, and so on. That rotation kept uh, driving Colombia's defense a little crazy, right? Moving them out of place, creating spaces in between the center backs and creating space behind the fullbacks. The key here is that Ecuador was also able not just to build the bomb from the back, building from the back through the middle, but also through the wings, right? And this is where Pervis Estupiñan had a fantastic game, right? He was key in ball progression, right? He did only He didn't only have line-breaking passes through the wing or through the middle. He also had fantastic crosses to get to the final third, right? That was very creative and gave us a lot of options, right, to move the ball up. Ecuador in the first half focused in the space behind Orejuela and Mojica, which where they exploited extremely well, 
right? I'm pretty sure that Orejuela Mojica will have nightmares with Ecuadorian jerseys for the next few days. It, it did bring back some memories from the Ecuador from a few years ago in which we had so much pace and power that even on the wings that even if they tried to plan to stop us, they couldn't. Even so, the sixth, the fifth, and the third goal, the third goals happened through the wings, right? Exploring the space behind the fullback, right? So that was key. Now, it felt like Ecuador won every second ball, just like I said. So much that the first, second, and fourth goal were a result of second balls won by Ecuador, right? So that's why I was mentioning that it's key for Ecuador and for the analysis of this game to understand the aerial prowess that Ecuador showed and the intensity and grit to, to win every second ball, every bounce, right? Because goals came out of that. Now, out of the goals that Ecuador had, the third was probably my favorite. And what I like the most about this goal is that Adolfo Munoz was recently injured. So we were playing with 10 players, right? And this is the key where Angel Mena showed what he was such a wonderful part of this game and such a key component of the Ecuadorian victory, right? Because Munoz was playing on the left, Mena was playing through the middle or through the right side, depending on the moment of the game. And then when Munoz gets out injured, he moves to the left, creating a lot of confusion in Colombia's backline, right? And then, obviously, we had a, a passing pattern that I'm pretty sure is not an accident, and it's something that Alfaro has been practicing, right? Because Pervis moved the ball up to Moises Caicedo. Moises Caicedo lets the ball go to Mena. Mena wins the space behind the fullback and crosses to Estrada, right? Great goal with 10 players, right? Unacceptable for Colombia, great, great accomplishment by Ecuador, right? Now, in regards to Colombia, I can say a few things, right? Like, they had serious issues breaking Ecuador's pressure to build from the back, which was very evident throughout the game, right? At least through the through the first half, because they lost a lot of balls in dangerous spaces, right? Which led them to throw long balls to Duvan, which was not the best plan, given Ecuador's aerial prowess, like I mentioned. Now, it's also key to mention that uh, Colombia won a few, like three or four headers in attacking spaces, and all those three headers ended up in dangerous shots from Colombia. But that was pretty much it. Everything else was uh, won by Ecuador. Now, even though it's a very, like, as a head coach, I would not do what Queiroz did and do a quadruple sub in the first half, right? That's it was really, a statement, wasn't it? It was basically like, all right, this did not work. So I'm going to bring on four players before halftime. Fabra, Muriel, Suarez, Barrios, you're all on. It was, I think, Javier, it, on, on the last set of matches, we talked about how there were a couple moments where managers kind of, they made one switch as kind of an admission, like, ah, I got this wrong. You know, Cueva came on for Peru still in the first half. There were a couple of those moments. This, though, was more like, Nothing worked, and I'm just going to throw four players on as, as just to show that I'm mad. But there wasn't really any, I don't know, it didn't feel like there was a lot of thought that went into to throwing four players on before halftime. It was more just an admission of this is not going well, right? I, I agree. Now, my issue with, uh, with the quadruple sub is that you're pointing up guilty parties, right? And this is a locker room that you have to go back into, you know? And this is a group of players that you're going to have to bring back again. Right, and you're pointing them out in the most public way. That's that's a difficult thing to support out of a head coach, right? Now, in all fairness, Kairos is in a very dire position, so maybe he can afford that. I don't know. Now, um, in those quadruple sub, 
right? Uh, among the things that they did is that he takes he takes out Mojica, he puts in Fabra to see if they can solve the, the huge hole behind them in the fullback position. He brings Cuadrado back. And then the key sub is getting Barrios in, right? Because Barrios changed completely the game for Colombia. When Barrio gets in, the building both from the back and the ball progression for Colombia progressively improves, right? Which forces Ecuador to bring back the pressure line all the way from high up the line to the midfield and then to a lower block, right? Which gives which gives the ball and the possession to Colombia, which allows them to move the ball better, right? So Barrios was key, right? That was a pretty clear change in the way that they did the game. Going specifically into the game, let's go to the highest point of the game, right? Like, and in Ecuador, we could go, we could talk over a few players. I'm just going to choose a few. Now, Jason Mendes replaced Carlos Reza. He had a great, great game. Very smart movements, and he clearly make a case to, that he deserves a chance to be part of that Ecuador's midfield. Pervis Estupiñan, fantastic game, several key contributions that without him, we would have ended up being trapped, trapped all the way in the back, like several locations in previous games. Or even Moises Caicedo, our World Football Index favorite, that even though he only needed up, ended up with one assist, that is the smallest part of the role in the game. Because being part of the high pressure, and the recoveries of the ball up the field, we were allowed to trap Colombia at the beginning. Yes, yeah, Adam? He got, he, got, he, got, he got one direct assist, but that that kind of flick that he did um, and pass he did for the third goal, I think it was, that yes. Ecuador scored, was probably the, the cla- one of the classiest moments of the game anyway, aside from Gonzalo Plata's goal later on. Absolutely. And he was key being the link between attack and midfield. So he has... He continues to show that at this point, we're just waiting who is going to be the luckiest team in Europe to get him. That's simple as that. Indeed, indeed. And and also, I would say that that midfield pairing of Caicedo and Mendes has definitely been sort of the best balance I've seen Ecuador have in, in that area of the pitch for years. But it's just one game, so we, we need to see them together again but that was a really impressive element of this performance for me i absolutely agree and and like i've said in the past like i don't th- i don't feel that grueso has done enough to say that's my position so mendes is now in the discussion and we have to see more of them i agree okay but now let's go over the best one of the game which in this case is angelito mena his contributions in the game were absolutely fantastic from his offensive work in the pressure to his magical, wonderful, exquisite control of the ball in that second goal, that was just insane. Now, also from his creativity and intelligence to choose when to move right or left, like for example, in the third goal when Munoz was injured, or into the middle, to the brilliance in that setup to Plata in the fifth goal. That back heel, oof, Mena was out of this world. Like I watched the game in the Colombian transmission like, sorry, the Colombian broadcast. And the commentators were just madly in love with him. Mena was fantastic. Now, the f- best part of this story, though, is Letos Alfaro. Alfaro, after the game with Argentina, all the Argentinian broadcasters and journalists promised me a head coach that was very rigid, strict, and had tunnel vision in regards of how to coach a team. One way and one way only. I did However, that too. I'll, I'll own up to that, Javier. That was me too. <laughs> That's true, Austin. I didn't want to call you out, but yes. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. 
<laughs> okay. However, in four games with Alfaro, I have seen traditional and inverted wingers, fullbacks playing as wingers, a double pivot in the middle, as well as a CDM dropping in between center backs to help ball progression, center forwards as strikers. I have seen classic attacking midfielders and goal-scoring center forwards playing as attacking midfielders. I have seen high and intense pressure as pressure as well as low blocks taking pressure. Wingers rotating with attacking midfielders and CMs to keep the ball moving, fullbacks overlapping in the wing, and also moving into midfield to work as center midfielders to add numbers in the middle. Right? That's pretty flexible in my book. Right? He has shown a lot of flexibility, a lot of changes, a lot of ad adaptability to the games. Right? However, my favorite change that he has done is that he has added the tactical foul to the high pressure. Right? That's something that Ecuador needed from a decade ago. Right? That's how modern teams do high pressure, right? You don't, you don't let your team get counterattacked, right? So that has been something that Alfaro has clearly added to the repertoire, defensive repertoire of the team that has been extremely useful, right? Now, one of the curious things about Alfaro is that he didn't show one emotion throughout the game, right? We scored six goals. He never changed his face. No dancing after a goal. Not running down the line after a goal not jumping on the lines, uh, sorry, on the arms of one of his staff members, nothing. The only emotion that I saw him show was when he hugged Gonzalo Plata after he scored his fifth goal, got his second yellow card, and then got a red card. Yeah, I thought, I, thought uh, I described that as quite a sweet moment on, on Twitter last night when I was watching the game back in the early hours of the morning. Yeah, I, I've I, I really, you know, you really felt sorry for for Platavir as, and I saw a tweet today that he put out where, you know, he was he he was very apologetic about it and that he had done wrong. But I think Alfaro seems to, yeah, he seems to have built a bit of a connection with these young players, and and and, and they seem to have a, a rapport with him. Absolutely, and I feel that his lack of emotions on the sideline—they're just representing that he's saying to his team, "I do not expect less of you." This is what I expect of you. This is the performance that I've seen you, that you're capable of doing. That's why you're showing it. That's why I'm not surprised. That's why I'm not celebrating, because this is what I expect of you. So that means a lot for the team, for the fans, for the players, for the rest of the staff. Alfaro is winning a lot of supporters right now. <laughs> now, the I think, yes. Sorry, I, I, think, well, I think one big question I would have, Javier, about this Ecuador side is, is three of these four games have been played at altitude, which, you know, traditionally suits uh, a squad of Ecuador players, certainly when this squad of Ecuador players, like they have now, are very used to playing at altitude. In the last World Cup qualifying cycle, one of the big questions around the Ecuador team when, when they did kind of fall apart after, after the stunning start after four match days was the fact that so many of their players were now based outside of Ecuador. They were coming back and they were struggling themselves to adapt to the to the altitude. But you know, this is a squad full of players who are very used to playing at altitude, so no adaption needed. Um, and the one game they did play outside of altitude under Alfaro so far has been that one 0 defeat to Argentina, where they showed very little. So for me, that would be sort of the one big question mark. But that performance against Argentina did come in the first game and what we've seen if you, if you put that Argentina game 
as the fourth game after three big wins, for example, then maybe you would see a much more confident Ecuador go go to Argentina and actually try and attack. Well, that's exactly you just stole my point, right? Like the one of the key differences that we saw from the third the three victories uh, that Ecuador had in comparison to the game against Argentina is the desire to get the game, right? That high high intensity, high pressure that Ecuador shown against Bolivia, Uruguay, and Colombia, right? And considering that in Argentina's back line, they're building from the back is not the greatest attribute, just to be generous. I think that we would have benefit, right? Because even the second half against Argentina, right? We move up that pressure line and we played a way better second half than we did in the first, right? So I do think that these victories are obviously look better than they really are. And that's why I, at the beginning, I have to bring myself back down because even the sweetest moments are not really that sweet, meaning that we're not as good as our best moments, right? So I do think that we could have gotten a better result against Argentina if we played this way against them, right? Because like I said, building from the back is not the greatest attribute. And that's, and that's a weakness that we exploited against Colombia. And it's a weakness that we can exploit, that we could have exploited against Argentina, right? Now, the last thing about Alfaro that I want to highlight is that Ecuador has scored 13 goals. We had the highest scoring team in the qualifiers. I don't think many people would have predicted that when they were <laughs> Absolutely, right. And the key thing is that those 13 goals have come from nine different players. And that tells me two things. One, that that very close partnership that Alfaro has built with Jorge Celico, which is a U20 coach, and and you know how, as many as achievements that Celico has uh, gotten with, their, with the youth teams, um, they're working, their partnership is working wonderful in the transition of bringing this new, new generation in. Right, and the team is working. The transition is smooth. We have um, a team that is currently working. The average age of the team is going low, lower. So the team is really working. Now, like I said, after the game against Argentina, Ecuador needs from Alfaro two things: identity and intensity to play. We have had many tactical changes, and in just four games, I cannot really say that we have an identity. But we're definitely playing with intensity and following instructions. Honestly, in just three months, Alfaro has this team playing better than several quote-unquote processes that we have had recently. It's been really impressive to, to see this Ecuador side. And like you said, Javier, the flexibility from Alfaro is not something I expected. It's not something a lot of people expected. And it's something that he definitely deserves credit for. These performances have been really good. And I understand your desire to, you know, to take a step back and try to bring things back down. But it's also very much worth pointing out here that with the way that we're seeing kind of the bottom half of this qualifying table shape up, and as we get into these other matches, we'll break that down more, as many points as Ecuador can pick up and get above that line as soon as they can, it gives them that slipping space. It gives them that margin for error. So, yes, Adam's point about altitude is valid and it's there, but Ecuador still have plenty of games at altitude to come. They have a whole slate of home matches there. So I think this is a very positive start from Ecuador. It's certainly better than I personally expected, and it, I think it's something that they can continue on as these qualifiers go on. You would assume these young players are, are only going to get better, um, but, but let's wait and see, like you say, but the, the signs are promising so far. Adam, 
Simon, suspiciously absent from the podcast today, broke down one right. big loss for Columbia. Austin, was Ecuador 6, Colombia 1, the greatest advert yet for Colombia needing three defensive midfielders? I think so. I think so. How could it not be? Um, Adam, this was, this was bad from Colombia. And, and as good as it was from Ecuador, it was equally bad from Colombia. Barrios not, not starting was a big question mark. Um, yet again, just like they did against Uruguay, they conceded early. This time, they conceded two goals early. Is this it for Carlos Queiroz? I, I, I'd personally be quite surprised if he if he does survive this. Because um, it's not just this result, is it? You've got to add in the fact that they got hammered by Uruguay as well. Um, they conceded two goals to Chile, so... You know, eleven goals conceded in in three matches is an import is an appalling defensive record. If these last two matches has seen that centre back pairing of Mina and Sanchez get broken up. Mina played poorly in in the in the three nil defeat against Uruguay, and then Sanchez played possibly even worse yesterday. So they've got a host of of issues at the moment. Um, and for me, yesterday was a performance. Watching it back last night, it looked to me that some of those players down tools at times, and that looked like they were trying to send a message, you know, to the Colombian FA that they don't particularly want to play for this manager anymore. Maybe that's harsh. Maybe it was the altitude, and they simply couldn't. They couldn't breathe, and then you know they they were just overwhelmed by by such an intense performance from Ecuador. But yeah, I, I think Javier made a good point earlier about you know changing four players at once as well. You know, players will talk in the dressing room after that game, but they've never bit that group of players has never suffered such humiliating defeat. And you've got to think that you know there will be a lot of lot of pressure on Kiros after and, this. And and one of the things that I think is interesting with this conversation, Adam, is where would Colombia turn next? And I think that is as key as the question of do they get rid of Kados or not? It's who do you turn to next? Um there's not going to be a, a period of of experimentation until the the Copa America, which Lest you forget, half of that is going to take place on Colombian soil, which probably ups the pressure on Colombia to, to put in a performance in that tournament. And so there's not a whole lot of room to, to bring somebody in and to try and instill a style. Colombia's next game is at home against Brazil. Um, I saw Juan Carlos Osorio's name getting tossed around, yeah. which... And I, and I joked that if he was in charge, it probably would have finished seven once. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure who's the answer. It'll be interesting. Um, whatever the the decision is, I think continuing on this path is dangerous for Colombia. You can't let too many opportunities slide in this qualification cycle with as tight as it is, with as many teams seemingly in the conversation. Um, every match is going to count and basically throwing away a window, getting hammered at home and then getting beat even worse away from home. Difficult, difficult for Colombia. Um, and, and we'll be interesting to see where they go. Let's move on to our next match, and we will head to Asuncion for one of the more interesting results, historic results, in fact, a 2-2 draw between Paraguay and Bolivia, the first point ever for Bolivia away in Paraguay, and it almost looked as though they would pick up their first away World Cup qualifying win since 1993. 
Potiguai scored early after VAR handed them a penalty for a pretty clear shirt grab in the box from a Bolivian defender. Angel Romero, as he has done on multiple occasions now in this World Cup qualifying cycle, found the back of the net from the spot to make it 1-0 to Paraguay. But then right before halftime, Bolivia, looking as good as they have looked at any point in this qualification cycle, found two goals. Uh, Marcelo Martins Moreno, the Bolivian legends, probably the best player Bolivia have ever had, became their all-time leading goal scorer with his first effort, which was a well-taken strike to make it 1-1. And then he was integral in setting up the second goal, which came from Boris Cespedes, who's playing in the Swiss Super League to make it 2-1. Bolivia got to halftime with that result. Paraguay found a goal back in the second half. They looked to have found it earlier. It was chopped off for offside. But then Kaku Romero, the New York Red Bulls player, uh, found the back of the net to make it 2-2. That result ended up how it finished, although both sides had a couple of chances to to make that result three points either way. Roberto, I'll bring you in here. And before we get into the specifics of this individual match, what is the mood with these Paraguay performances. They've yet to lose. They're one of three sides that have yet to lose this World Cup qualification cycle. But they've also collected three draws, and I think two of those at home against Peru and Bolivia are seen as points dropped rather than a point one. They had the the win that they got away to Venezuela. They had to wait late for that. Where's the mood at in Paraguay with these four results? Well, I think anyone that looks at that real quick and says, okay, yeah, they've gone unbeaten, you know, one win, three draws. They're still in a contention. They're in the spot to qualify for the World Cup. One would assume that you would feel content. But the picture, the, the bigger picture is is obviously a different uh, atmosphere. I think, like you said, I think many people in Paraguay treat this more as a as a loss, which almost nearly was. And and certainly, I think when you look at the performances of the games that were at home, obviously Peru and Bolivia, two sides who are at the bottom of the table at the moment, I think it was a missed opportunity for them. And I think ultimately, it's almost as if we're seeing the deja vu yet again. I think if we recall in the last World Cup qualifying process, uh, we, we, we saw a habit of Paraguay being able to get points away from home and then being unable to capitalize at home at the Defensores del Chaco. So... I think the vibe certainly has become very grim in a way. I, I know it's. I know there's two sides to this in a way. One is that people already feel as if though, you know, the more really big pessimistic believe that Qatar 2022 might not be in the vision for Paraguay. I, I think certainly that could be a bit far fetched to understand because, you know, it's four games in. Come on, a, a World Cup isn't over. A World Cup qualifying process is not over. Well, it depends on the nation, I guess. After four games, especially when you're still unbeaten and when you're still in a process, uh, when you're still technically in a spot to qualify directly. But I think ultimately, I think this performance really points to a, a, a picture of where Paraguay are trying to be, what kind of identity they're trying to put. I think we saw a side that lacked a bit of energy. You know, there was no grit. And, you know, I think all of you know how hard Paraguay have always become to face um, historically, not, not just in this qualified process or in the last one, you know, historically they've always been an opponent that have been hard for teams to beat. And now ultimately that we're coming into the, the idea of how we're becoming a team that's, that's beatable, you know, and, and, and ultimately a side that is trying to regain advantage over the course of, you know, not just this combo, but in the last four games, you know, out of those three, you know, they took the lead in, in, in the game against Peru. They took the lead against Argentina 
and the one against Bolivia and ultimately to lose it in the end. Um, so I think to answer your question, Austin, I think the atmosphere is very pessimistic. I, I think one would have to assess how far Paraguay can go with Eduardo Verizo. I, I, I think, yes, it's not the end of the world because you didn't lose a game yet, but uh, as well, I think many people will view this as, you know, rather than a point earned, um, it's almost as if it's two points lost. And, and that's that's ultimately how people feel like it. And I think after the draw against Argentina, which could have gone either way, I think if, if a win was guaranteed there, it, mu- it could have been a different atmosphere and this maybe would have been much more positive to an extent. But now we feel as if though, or at least the people in Paraguay feel as if though, that draw didn't really make any difference because you now go into a situation where you know, you have to take maximum points at home. You have to say, and it's those games where, you know, if, if you do slip up away eventually, you know, you have to rely on what you're able to get at home. And the fact that you're only able to get only two points from those games at home, it paints a really grim picture of what Paraguay could enter uh, heading into the next uh, matches. I just, I just want to put this to Roberto already, because my, my impression of Paraguay and something I've said about them over these last couple of months, is, is they look a team a little bit with a confused identity. So you've got the old kind of Paraguayan way of doing things, and Burrito's come in and, and tried to instill a new way of doing things, and I don't think the players are quite convinced by it, and I think that is perhaps one of the reasons which is is kind of leading to these you know glaring errors that they're making in games, you know, conceding two at home to... Bolivia was, you know, the the worst um, they've, they've ever had it against uh, against Bolivia at home. They'd never done that before, which must be extremely concerning. Because if Paraguay are to qualify for a World Cup, as we've discussed on podcast before, Roberto, you know, you need that strong defence. I feel. Yeah, definitely, and I think ultimately it's it's become sort of a of a of a crossroads for Paraguay in a way. You know, what are we? And that's probably the big debate people are having at this point or right now in Paraguay. Is like, where do we want to play? What suits us? I understand that you know styles change, and you have to you have to eventually be accustomed to what's new and what's fresh and what helps teams uh, succeed on the global game, but. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I think when you're looking at, especially of the goals that they did concede, you know, mainly from uh, you know a defensive uh, mistakes and, and and poor marking, where ultimately historically it's always been a, a virtue of them to always be strong defensively. You know, that rock solid defense. You know, kind of conservative style of play, and then to play on the counter. That's always been something that's kind of been their identity. Berizzo tries to come in and. You know, credit to him and, and, and the way of him thinking. I mean, obviously, he comes from a school that is very, very uh, strong on its values and are, are kind of stubborn in that, in, in not wanting to change. But for him to create a style where, you know, you're trying to dominate possession, you're trying to to do well and, and pressure up high, you didn't see that in that game. I mean, yes, they did dominate possession, but you didn't see that kind of pressure go towards um, Bolivia, you know, you saw a lot of disorganization. You, I, I think you made the right word on that one, um, Adam. You know, they looked confused. They really did look confused. And, you know, when you have... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, I know from seeing Barisso's sides here in here in Chile, who is manager of O'Higgins for a couple of years, and, you know, I followed his progress since then. You've got to 
for his style to work, you've got to commit to it completely or it's not going to quite function. And, that, and that's the thing. Yeah, no, and I agree. I, I think we didn't see that kind of grit and like feeling from them in those in that game. I, I think, yeah, you do could perhaps um, lack the players that perhaps are not playing in the system that that he's a wants, you know, having, you know, Junior Alonso, who, you know, is a good player and it's in his, in his own form, but ultimately does not suit perfectly as a left back. You, know, you want him as a center back, but even then with your issues at center back, where many people in Paraguay were kind of feeling confident, you know, initially when this whole qualified process started, you know, when you have Gustavo Gomez, who's doing a lot of Palmeiras, Fabian Malbuena at West Ham, um, you know, Omar Derete, who just got his move to Hertha Berlin, Robert Rojas, who's done well at River, Junior Alonso, as I said, I mean, you know, you would feel that you would think to yourself, yeah, they might feel confident in, in not conceding goals, but now when you've conceded five goals in, in four games, it's 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 very concerning. And I think ultimately it's it's going to be very interesting to see what happens uh, within the next few months. Uh, I mean, you know, I think Bediso will want to understand if he wants to feel, you know, confident and loyal to the system that that he's always worked with, or if, you know, it, just because of what Paraguay have historically become and have always become, you know, well-known in that kind of defensive uh, attitude and, you know, pragmatism when needed, is to go into that system that works for for the players who have been used to it for, so, for such a long time. And I think the thing that gets really interesting for Paraguay here, Roberto, is, is when you... you look ahead and you see what their next four fixtures are in March away to Chile at home to Colombia. And then in next June, they go away to Uruguay and host Brazil. Those are four massive matches and it's not inconceivable to see even a Paraguay side playing well, come away with that with one, maybe three points. Yeah, they, they quite often do well in Chile. So that is, that will certainly <laughs> not sure. be uh, one many Chileans will be looking forward to. I, I would say that overall, though, Paraguay have had the easiest start on yeah. paper. Um, Peru and Bolivia at home. Venezuela away was their first game. And, you know, that's not as easy as maybe it was 15, 20 years ago. But the fact that they played Venezuela without Rondon up front, and I think Soteldo might have been missing for that game as well. And, you know, as, as we come on to later, those two were key in, in Venezuela's victory over Chile. So, yeah, it really feels like they've had a, they've had a kind start and probably I think the final analysis on, on them is they haven't quite taken full advantage of that. No, and it's it's really a missed opportunity. I, I think you, I think Austin, you bring up a great point on that. I, I think the games that come uh, in the future, you know, Chile, Colombia, Uruguay, and then Brazil. I think what could have been for Paraguay, you know, going into these games, that they would, that if it were to go wrong in those games uh, against those four opponents, that at least if they were able to get maximum points um, in the first few games where. Yeah, I agree. I think it was probably as best as the, as a as a combo, or at least you know four matches that you can have, you know, against uh, two sides that are now at the bottom of the table, and then obviously the win against Venezuela, where historically they've always done well away, and then Argentina, who've always been quite a an interesting opponent, and they've always gotten that historical feel to it as well. So no, I I, I completely agree. I, I think you can only feel as if though what 
and, and, and Adam, you bring up a good point. I think that's always been the issue. I, I think it's like with this Paraguay side, you know, you, you feel in a way as if though they will always go, they, they always kind of confuse you in a way. They're like, you know, they're supposed to win at home against sides where are beatable in quotation marks, but yet they don't do it and they don't capitalize. But yet when they have a bigger challenge against a side that's much more historically bigger or, or with better talent, they seem to be up for the task. And we saw that as well, maybe in the Copa America, you know, with games against Argentina, even the one against Brazil. Okay, yeah, they lost on penalties, but they gave them a game in that sense. The game against Argentina and obviously the win against Venezuela. And now, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a situation where Paraguay can go into that game against Chile, you know, feeling, you know, that they want to get a, 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 a bucket of cold water being thrown to them. And to go and, and get a result there, only for them to not capitalize when they do host Colombia uh, five days later. So that that's the thing. It, it's it's almost as if though, what are we going to play as? Like, what is our mentality? I mean, certainly we want to make the World Cup. I I don't. I think the even the most optimistic doesn't assume that we're going to qualify into the top three. I, I think ultimately the goal was always going to be for that fourth place or even the playoff spot. They're still there for now. I mean, we'll see what happens within the next year if they're still in a in contention. But yeah, I, I think that's the that's the key. Really, it's you know, it's trying to see where we play and improve defensively. I, I think from the attack, you know, we didn't really mention that much about it. But I think you know, we saw Angel Romero kind of been the revelation. You know, a player that initially, you know, wasn't even considered to be a, a member of the starting eleven. Now he comes in and scores four goals in his first four games in the qualifiers, and now he's. He's a, um, I, I think he's probably an unquestionable starter. But also, I think, you know, you, you didn't see much of that kind of uh, energy from the wings as well. And maybe that's the loss of how big Almiron is and how important he can become when leading onto the attack. I, I think we, we can understand also from the subs where we saw Kaku Romero getting his goal and that kind of assertiveness to get it. But yeah, no, I, I think the the final impressions that we can get from, from Paraguay after not just this game, but of the four games is that it's a side that continues to be very exposed, you would say, at home and then, you know, tries to rise to the occasion uh, away from home. But ultimately, overall, it's a side that perhaps are not suited for the system that Berizzo wants to go in. And because of that, it, it, it pays a price for them to not get the results that they want uh, in the games that really matter. Adam, on Bolivia, on la, the last show, I made the point that even if they wanted to fire Cesar Farias, it was unclear who would be the person to do that. I was discussing uh, with John Arnold, who of course covers CONCACAF, covers South American football, does a lot of stuff. Uh, he said that Evo Morales could have probably fired Cesar Farias, of course, back in the country, the, the former president of Bolivia. I actually agree with that point. Had Evo stepped in and said, Cesar, you're done, that probably would have worked. But now reasons for optimism with Bolivia? This was by far the best they've looked, right? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I only saw the second half. Like, like well, most of the second half live. And one thing that struck me was after it went two-two, where I thought that maybe Bolivia would just hang back and grimly hang on for for the two-two draw. They didn't do that, and they actually created a couple of chances themselves. And and the most fascinating thing for me was there was this situation where they just penned Paraguay in into the corner, 
for a good couple of minutes, just with some excellent high pressing, really well organised. And I was thinking, well, where was this in the past? This is basically what we expected to see from from Bolivia with the altitude advantage in La Paz. But, you know, it never, as we've discussed before um, on these pods under under Ferrez, they just didn't seem to be doing what they're good at, but they did manage to do it in a away game, which is something you rarely see from from Bolivia. So, yeah, they're kind of another side, a little bit confused at the moment, I think, as to exactly what they want to do. Um, but this point is probably good enough to save Farias his job I'd be surprised if they make a change now between between Mar- uh, between now and March but yeah um, much much improved Bolivia display out of nowhere really yeah this was certainly an unexpected positive performance from them they come back and will host Peru and then visit Uruguay in March um, Bolivia are probably still not going to make the World Cup. But this was by far the best that they've looked. And if they can build on this, they can continue to be a thorn in the side of opposition, particularly if they can play like this when they're in La Paz. Let's move on to our next match to break down, which saw Venezuela pick up their first three points of this qualification cycle. A 2-1 win against a Chile side who were looking to make it two positive performances in a row. They were unable to do that. Venezuela scoring early, Luis Mago Del Pino on the board. Chile fought back very quickly, which was impressive to see Arturo Vidal finding the back of the net yet again for them. But it was big Solomon Rondon back in the Venezuelan squad who ended up getting the winner for Jose Pesado's side. Jordan, I'll bring you in. You've been waiting patiently. You've been looking forward to breaking down these three points. This was, just like we talked about with Bolivia, I think this was the best that Venezuela have looked so far in this qualification cycle. And perhaps most imp- more importantly for them, I think there was a lot that they can build on from this performance as they look towards future matches. Yeah, it's been a it's been a difficult start for for Venezuela in these World Cup qualifiers. It's Jose Pizarro's first four games in charge. Uh, although he was brought in in February, obviously the the pandemic means not only has he not had any time to to prepare with friendlies, uh, but also had very little time with any of his players. Full stop. Um, and that that first game against Colombia was was a big issue. Um, Rondon's absence ab, uh, adding to that, but the identity uh, of Venezuela in these qualifiers was something that nobody really knew what it was going to be. Jose Pizarro, despite having a track record as a, as a manager in, in Portugal and formerly an assistant to Carlos Carreras, was still fairly unknown in terms of the identity he'd give Venezuela. What we've learned in these first four games, including yesterday, uh, is that the first thing he's going to do is is build a defensive base. That seems odd for people that have perhaps followed Venezuelans, uh, the national team's performances over the past five years, because under Rafael Dudamel, they were a defensive team. Uh, but what the difference seems to be is that under Dudamel, it was, it was counter-attacking football uh, as the, the one option. There, there wasn't really a, a plan B to it. Whereas I think Pacero's, uh mission in these first four games uh, and it will take longer than just these first four games, is to build a defensive base from which they can then aim to be more adventurous. And and that's not something that, that Venezuela, Venezuelan football fans really saw from Dudamel. He, what he did was very effective. At the end of the day, he got them up from like 70-something in the world to a high of 25th. Um, and that can't be knocked. Uh, but it, it was one-dimensional. 
and the positives to take from the first four games of Jose Pesero uh, is that he definitely has uh, an idea of what he wants to do. Uh, against Colombia, he, he learned very early on that playing with three offensive midfielders was not going to work. Um, and they, they suffered for that. And then against Paraguay, uh, I think Paraguay were, were lucky to win that game. Um, neither team were outstanding at all but it was a late Paraguay goal. Yango Herrera for Venezuela had a header disallowed uh, and then missed the penalty. And then against Brazil, the, you know, the, the mission was to get a point um, and it was a, just a, a moment of absent-mindedness that cost them with Roberto Firmino's goal. Of course, Brazil, out of the two teams, deserved the, deserved the victory. Venezuela hung on um, and it, their mission was only ever to... To defend. So after the first three games, three defeats, uh, a lot of Venezuelan football fans uh, were were rightly um, putting a lot of uh, onus on last night's game against Chile. The most defeatist Venezuelan football fans would have seen last night as a loss to Chile would have meant any hope of qualifying for the World Cup would already be over, which seems uh, you know very premature when it's a long qualifying campaign. Uh, but it was sort of like, well, where's the hope? coming from and what we saw last night was definitely the first half the best 45 minutes of football that Venezuela have p- played under Jose Pacero uh, the second half they started Venezuela the first five minutes like it was going to be a continuation of that but then Chile really got a hold of the game um, and they I think Chile controlled it pretty much until Soteldo came on uh, it, it was Chile's game to to win I never really think they they looked Either side looked dominant. Um, I wouldn't say that either side were absolute standout performers over the other one in that second half at all, and not really for the first half either. Um, but the, the difference is uh, that one goal uh, in the second half from Soteldo's play down the right, crossing into Rondon. And it was a really brave uh, decision, as, as obvious as the decision to bring Soteldo on was. It was also a very brave decision because at the point that he came on, Chile were, were in control of the game. Um, Venezuela needed to do something to come back into it. But Pacero could have gone two ways. He One of two ways. He could have bought on Soteldo, which he did, and tried to regain control of the game with a bit of attacking initiative. Or he could have tried to go for, let's see this out and get the point. Um, it was the first... If it stayed like that, it was going to be the first point Venezuela had won in these qualifiers. And also it was the first goal that they'd scored with Luis Mago's header. Um, and maybe he could have just played safe, tried to regain possession in the middle of the field, but not necessarily tried to go in search of a winning goal. Juan Pianor would have been, as creative as he is, would have been the obvious choice if regaining control in the middle of the park with possession was the route he went to. He didn't. He bought on Soteldo and then he bought on Otero as well, uh, replacing firstly uh, Saverino, who was uh, coming in for Soteldo in the first place as one of the changes from the game against Brazil. And then he bought on Otero for Christian Caceres Jr. Uh, and they were able to to get that winner. But then a something that's going to have to change in the Venezuelan mindset of the national team uh, plagued them in that in that last 10 minutes. Uh, they panicked. Um, it was hard to see out that game. It really was heart in the mouth stuff. Uh, I was not expecting Chile to get an equaliser, but I thought it was likely. Um, Christian Casares Jr. had to clear the ball practically off the line, a few centimetres out. Um, 
and we really had to really had to hang on in those final minutes. But they did. Um, I, it wasn't through a game plan though. Um, they they needed to be calmer in those final five, five minutes. They needed to have the discipline to to try and keep hold of the ball and see the game out, which they didn't do. Um, but just as as a an overall summary of how that game went last night, uh, hopefully that anyone that didn't see it that will give you a brief idea of of how it went. Um, I think the standout performers for Venezuela last night, far above anyone else on the field, was Yangel Herrera. He he was quality. Um, and I think the the best way of just distilling his entire performance into to one moment or one narrative was uh, getting in Arturo Vidal's head and and living in it for the rest of the game. He nutmegged him about midway through the first half uh, and pulled away from him quite quickly. And and Vidal reacted petulantly by by literally kicking him in the calf that the referee missed. Uh, and then that that stayed with Vidal. He was. Uh, Yangel was a marked man after that from Vidal. Uh, and that's that's a young Venezuelan midfielder getting into the head of one of the, the most experienced midfielders in South American football. Um, and, and it rattled him for, for the rest of the game. Vidal was was trying to get back at Yangel. And Yangel was developed so much as a player in his time in La Liga with, with Granada uh, this season and the season before as well, where he plays alongside Darwin Machis, uh, another Venezuelan international. And Herrera has really matured as a player, adding like a lot of an attacking depth to his game that we didn't see last season. Um, and we saw that again last night. Junior Moreno sat in the midfield three with Christian Caceres and Yangel Herrera um, shuttling be- between the two. Uh, transitioning the play from defence into attack and they did that very well and you know that was a midfield that was absent of Thomas Rincon uh, and was he missed like that it sounds like a brazen question to ask considering you know Rondon, Rincon and Rosales, Rosales also missing last night um, have been one constant in in Venezuela's national team for practically 10 years now Uh, and only Rondon was available last night yet Alexander Gonzalez who filled in for Rosales um, at right back was one of the best performers last night, and with Christian Caceres and um, Moreno doing a lot of the supporting work for for Yangel, who is not a number ten, no way, but made a lot of the drives upfield and started a lot of the attacking play. Um, Rincon was not missed. Of course, he come back in purely because of his experience, his hierarchy, and he is still a very very good player for Venezuela. Um, but. It was a very, very promising performance in the absence of a few few key players. Jordan, how big is Solomon? Okay, this is a weird question. How big is Solomon Rondon? He's a big boy. Um, how important is he to what Venezuela do? As Adam mentioned, he wasn't there for Venezuela. A disagreement with the club over whether to release him um, for the October fixtures. He's back here in November He's such a critical player to what it is Venezuela wanted to do, and it certainly felt that way last night. That his return was kind of what what kicked Venezuela on in this match. Yeah, he he is so so important, and it's it's not like a big conversation, but there are some Venezuelan fans that are, are starting to say, like, well, should we start looking to you know bring through the next number nine for Venezuela, um, and maybe Rondon, his time in China is. Uh, indicative of his his quality diminishing in some way but you know last night was his his 31st goal for Venezuela um and yes he's a big guy he leads from the front in a, in a very combative way and he was he gave Chile lots to worry about in the first half um through his his size and his drive um constantly a niggle 
at the defenders and and it got it got one of the the Chilean centre backs uh, a yellow card inside inside ten minutes and it, it Rondon winning that free kick is what led to Venezuela getting the goal. Darwin Machis's cross into the back post was headed um, was headed back across uh, by Junior Moreno and Mago got the flick on um, and that that's what Rondon does he is an irritant to defenders um and he he does a lot of work off the ball that that isn't seen um obviously people who watch a lot of the premier league know that he can do that from his time with newcastle um and west brom his time in china has put question marks over whether he should still be leading the line for venezuela which is crazy when he's their you know their all-time top scorer um as of as of last year but then after rondon the the strikers that venezuela have Josef Martinez is out injured at the moment still. And then after that, there's there's Hurtado, who hasn't yet filled the promise um, that, that people have for him, who's now on loan uh, at Red Bull in Brazil. And then Eric Ramirez is doing very well um, in, in Europe. He made his debut in the, the last qualifiers. Uh, but Rondon looked tired when he got that goal last night. Um, some, some people were commenting just before he got the goal, um, saying like, you know, he needs to come off. Uh, I myself commented that he looked tired, um, which he did. But then he pops up at that that back post. Uh, Soteldo's cross put it on a plate for him, but like you still had to be there to put it in. Uh, and he did it so well, and he and he symbolises so much for for Venezuela. He's a fantastic player, and as you said, he's really really critical to what it is Venezuela want to do in this cycle. Adam, we said on the last podcast that the key for Chile was going to be, can they back up that positive performance last week against Peru? And can they turn that into another positive performance and pick up more three points? Um, And that unfortunately wasn't the case here. I thought for the first 10 minutes, Chile were taken out of this match by Venezuela. It was all in one half. That ended in the goal. I thought personally there was a good reaction from Chile. After those first 10 minutes, they did well to get back on level terms. Vidal scoring yet again. But then after that, it just, it just kind of felt like Chile weren't able to get a hold of this match in maybe the way that they would have wanted to. That eventually led to Venezuela being able to score and take the lead. And like Jordan said, it certainly wasn't easy for Venezuela to see out the last 10 minutes of this match. There were moments when I thought Chile had found the equalizer. But at the end of the day, it's a disappointing loss for Chile, particularly given the fact that they weren't able to pair that win against Peru with another positive result here against Venezuela. Yeah, first of all, I thought that Jordan's analysis of this game was excellent and I couldn't really disagree with any point that he made on it. That's pretty much exactly how I saw this game unfold as well. I think for Chile, the story so far has been very fine margins, hasn't it? Injury time, goals, cost and points against Uruguay and Colombia. While Venezuela's only real chance of the second half was converted um, to, to win this game here, um, yeah, it was a it was a fairly solid display from Chile in the second half after, after quite a poor one in the first half. But I don't think Chile can have any complaints about losing this one. If you take the ninety minutes as a whole, Venezuela's game plan was ultimately the one that worked the better here. I think you have to say Chile were, Chile all, were always leaving themselves open in transitions on the flanks, especially in the first half. Felt like the ball in behind was always on. Chile also has always historically struggle, it seems, versus Venezuela on set pieces. And that and 
that's how the the first goal came about here, how a couple of other chances came about as well. Um, in possession, I thought Chile's centre, um, the use of the ball from Chile's centre backs was just not good enough, and and also further up the pitch in in possession, Chile lacked variety in their attack. Now you're talking about uh, earlier Ecuador. Javier was talking about Ecuador having you know a lot of variety uh, in their in their attacking options. It seemed like Chile only had one idea in this game, and that was to get it down the right, some interplay between Isla and Isla and Sanchez, and Isla to drill the ball across the uh, across the area. I think pretty much any half decent chance or chance came like that for for Chile in this game, including the goal. I agree with you. It was a good reaction initially from Chile, and I and four years ago when when Chile won four one away to Venezuela after going behind early, you know they they equalised soon after and then carried on from that. But I think the telling thing here is you know the the legs of this Chile side just isn't the same anymore. You know they haven't got it in their locker, and that is one thing I questioned. After the Peru game, yes, that was a decent display. They won two 0 It was pretty energetic, pretty pretty high intensity. But could they follow up four days later? And I think in this game we got a resounding no. You know, and ultimately, if your fullbacks are both over the age of thirty-two, and in Bosa yours case thirty-six, then it's obviously going to be a very hard um, task to try and repeat two intense performances which are needed in World Cup qualifying you know, to, to, to get maximum points out, out of games like this. Um, one plus point for Chile in this game was, um, although he didn't really have an impact on, on it, um, was the debut of Carlos Palacios, a, a player I rate really highly. I, I wrote a piece on him for World Football Index earlier this year around the same time as I wrote one on Moises Caseo and and both of their trajectories since writing that pieces, I don't think I could have I could have dreamt that have gone much better really with, with both of them now involved with their national teams. And and the thing about Palacios I wanted to mention was um well first of all he 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 had he's he's only twenty, he had a baby oh, on the Sunday that he's yet to meet because he was already in Venezuela at that point and um and now he's made his debut for Chile two days later so so quite a week for him and he's the first Chile player born post 1999 um to to play for Chile so that perhaps shows just how just shows how desperate Chile um situation has been in terms of bringing through young talent as well if uh, they had to wait that long to bring in sort of a, a player born to from 2000 onwards I'm not here really to make excuses for Chile or Rueda, but I don't think it's fair to compare, say, their defeat to Venezuela to, say, Paraguay's win over Venezuela in the first match day for reasons I've already mentioned, because I think Venezuela having Rondon and Saldado is a completely different proposition to to, to one without those two. Um, also, I don't. I've seen a lot of critics say Rueda's had three years to work with this side, and I think that's unfair as well. Because, firstly, a nature of international football, you know, there's there's long breaks between, and and the fact is, in Chile, in the last year, 
you know, they lost a whole year of inter- uh, football at international level and also a whole six months worth of football at domestic level. So this was a year where supposedly Chile were going to use a lot of um, these microcyclos to work with players domestically. But because of the pandemic, they couldn't do that. So, yeah, I feel that Ronaldo Rueda has been unfortunate there in that he really hasn't had the time to work with younger players to bring them through. And I think there's a huge gap um, between the golden generation and maybe now we're starting to see some talented players come through in Chile. But there, apart from Eric Polgar, there really wasn't a great deal of quality in between uh, those two generations. And that is not on the he- he- the current head coach of the Chile national side. That is on the Chilean FA. And that is a question, you know, I've been asking on this pod for, for many years. I'm sure you can remember Austin, going back, you know, I warned that there was going to be a situation around this time where Chile would be struggling to replace the golden generation. But not only that, trying to find a new identity or try and carry on an identity that has worked for the last 10 years, but perhaps with inferior players in those positions. So, yeah, Chile are at a bit of a crossroads at the moment. I think Colombia are in a similar position where they've got, what, four months now to decide do they want to stick with their current head coach or go down a different route. I think it'd be interesting to see what happens. Another point I, I would make is, like, for the 2014 World Cup, for example, Argentina and Colombia both lost to Venezuela away and still qualified for a World Cup. So, Because I've seen a lot of Chilean commentators here in the last um, 24 hours basically say, you know, if you lose a way to Venezuela, you have no chance of qualifying for a World Cup, which I don't think is 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 is, is fair, really. Um, and I think it's still very early days to say whether or not Chile are definitely out of the race. I think given the fine margins that I began this monologue with talking about us, I feel that is the narrative here in this Chile story so far. And if they carry on with those fine margins, then maybe some of the, some of the late results might just start to go their way at, at some point. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But I think the pleasing thing would be is that they've been in every game up until the very last minute. And, you know, that's a good thing because in previous World Cup qualifying campaigns, I can remember Chile getting absolutely blown away. So, yeah, it's... uh, I I think there's a a few negatives, a few positives. I don't think it's quite as bad as, as a lot of people are making out here in Chile. Yeah, the reaction to this result has been very, very... A lot of negative adjectives have been used to describe it, that's for sure. Um, And, yeah, a lot of people here in the media certainly want to see the back of Ronaldo Ruiz, but I'm not sure that 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 really solves any problem at the moment here for Chile because the problems run much deeper than just the head coach. The next match we're going to break down here was a 2-0 win for Chiche's Brazil side. Pretty much the same game plan kind of that we saw from them against Venezuela, except against a much higher level opposition and a really strong performance. They're the only side with a 100% record so far in qualification. Artur and Richarlison getting the goals for Brazil. 
Uruguay were without Luis Suarez. They were without Matias Vina. Both of those players tested positive for COVID and were held out of the squad. Obviously, those losses certainly were felt for this Uruguay side. Adam, this was better from Brazil, and this was also the Brazil that we've come to expect under Cheech. Uh, I think it's it's fair to say they've been... I don't know if it's fair to say they're the most impressive side in this World Cup qualification cycle, but they've been the most consistent, and I think they're the one side that we can pencil into Qatar 2020 without much question at this point. Yeah, I, I saw a Norwich fan I know based in Uruguay describe Brazil as big Uruguay, which which made me laugh a lot, and, and that was in terms of a conversation about if Brazil are the most pragmatic of the uh, of the South American nations now in 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 Commonwealth. Um and yeah and somebody replied with surely that's still Uruguay and then yeah and Sean Sean Lawson his name is replied with um well Brazil are basically just big Uruguay these days and uh, and I think I have to agree with that assessment especially when they don't have the the flair and skill of of Neymar on show. Um, I didn't I didn't see this match in its entirety, but I thought that the bits I did see, Uruguay actually were pretty impressive at, at the start of this game. Darwin Nunez was very unlucky with a with a very very powerful shot from about ten yards out, which almost broke the crossbar. I, th- I think they hit the I think they hit the bar again later in the half as well. But yeah, it was it was just two two bits of of in you know, of individual brilliance really from Brazil that, that got them the, the two 0 lead at half time and, and then they saw it out fairly comfortably in the second half, I think. And Cavani got himself sent off after a after a VAR review and that means that he will miss um Will he miss one or two matches? Do you think in uh, in March? But certainly one. And yeah, suddenly you know, getting Cavani back for these two games. You know, he was key in that win over Colombia, and now they're facing one or two matches without him again, which which is a big blow. But I thought that overall Uruguay's performances in these two World Cup match days in November were much better than their performances in October. don't know if you would agree with that, Austin. I think, yeah, I think so. Um, certainly against Colombia, like you said, and this was always going to be a difficult match. I think we were robbed of what could have been a really great spectacle with Suarez and Cavani um, playing up top together against this Brazil side. Javier, this Brazil side, they're just so good defensively. They've been good defensively, and, and they were again, and they have been again, and there's there's no reason to suggest that they won't continue to be that. And that's why I think we can say so confidently that Brazil are the class of the sides here in South America, particularly in this qualification cycle. Absolutely. Um, I'm really, I'm a huge fan of Brazilian midfielders, like right now in this generation, like the 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 rotation that they have right now of Casemiro, Fabinho, I'm a huge Douglas Luis fan, right? The defense is extremely solid. They have fullback options, center back options, goalkeeper options. Um, they track back, they move, right? This structure might not look very flashy, might not look like a Jogo Bonito, but they will allow the offensive players to do their thing. Like it creates the space and the ability and the freedom for players like Coutinho, for example, to get the best out of them. 
And like I said, like in the qualifiers, we will not see a flashy, brilliant Brazil, but this kind of Brazil, which will be very difficult to beat in a short tournament, be that Copa America or in the World Cup. So I'm a huge fan of what they're doing right now. That's the question for Brazil. And it's the question that we don't have the answer to now and that we won't have the answer to uh, until December of 2022 is can they translate what we fully expect them to do in this qualification cycle to a World Cup stage into what is probably going to once again come down to 90 or 120 minutes against the top tier European side in the World Cup quarterfinals, semifinals, and a potential final. That's the question for Brazil. We don't know the answer to it now. We're not going to know the answer to it until 2022, but we can feel pretty darn confident that they're going to make the World Cup. Adam, another side that it's looking like we can feel pretty confident will make the World Cup, and maybe it's a bit surprising to say that, is Argentina, who continued their really strong start this qualification cycle, bounced back from what was a mixed bag against Paraguay in the 1-1 draw earlier last week, late last week, I should say, with a 2-0 win away against Peru, a side that qualified, of course, for 2018. Adam, this was as good as Argentina have looked under Scaloni, and they did all of this with a performance that, dare I say, was less than spectacular from Lionel Messi. Yeah, I described it last night as perhaps the least clinical I've ever seen Messi be in a match. He had various opportunities. Um, Yeah, a couple of his classic sort of uh, finishes that we see from Messi sort of in in around the box central zone where he'll try and sort of pass it into the corner of the net. Um, A couple of those went wide. Um, he had uh, he had at least three shots I can remember blocked by by Peruvian defenders. Just ran out of time to get to get his shot a clean shot away. But I think the the two players that really stood out for me for Argentina in this game was the midfield pairing of um, Paredes and Los Celso. Um, really enjoyed watching those two players uh, and I. Th- I felt for a while that that would be the ideal centre midfield pairing for Argentina. I can recall some games in the past where having that kind of midfield has been a little bit of a turnstile for them, but in games where they they look to they look to really um, impose themselves on the opposition, I feel that's the ideal pairing. And I thought that this was uh, another fantastic display from Lo Celso. And I, and I just, and like I said the other day, I'm sure if you ask Messi which player he enjoys playing with most in this Argentina side, he would say Lo Celso. Because once again, you can see that Messi is a lot more free of responsibility when Lo Celso is on the field. Um, and although this only finished 2-0 Argentina, it could have been a lot more comfortable than that. I'd say that this was probably their best display so far in in the four games. But I think it was another very worrying performance from Peru, who have conceded two goals in each of the first four matches so far. And it is a Peru side that looks a world away from the one we saw qualify under Gareca in, in 2018 where even when they were losing games in, in that qualifying series, it always seemed that they could come good uh, at, at some stage, um, where you don't really see it with this with this current group of players. And I've, I've seen a lot of their 
supporters and analysts call for for a change somewhere. Um, some are even calling for Gareca's head, which, in my opinion, would be absolute madness and 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 basically very ungrateful as well to the one man who has been who has managed to get something out of um, what is not exactly a stellar group of of Peruvian players. Um, so. Yeah, I think Argentina and Brazil will certainly go into these next four months without any international football and in a very happy mood, Ecuador too, whilst Peru perhaps will be the most depressed set of, of all because just one point from four games um, is is a pretty poor return. Although, to be fair, their home games have been right. against Brazil and Argentina, so... They, they will they will have much easier games to come and that starts in March really, doesn't it? It feels like their World Cup qualifying campaign really might just start then. It also might end if if they're not as good yeah. as, as they as they should be in those games. Javier, what what did you make of this Argentina performance? I was particularly impressed by Nico Gonzalez, admittedly a player that I had Basically, no knowledge of before these these couple of World Cup qualifiers, but the Stuttgart man scored in the draw against Paraguay, scored again in this match, and is in flying form for Argentina. A good performance. So sorry, sorry, Javier. I, I just want to mention you've just reminded me, Austin, of a of an amusing tweet I saw where somebody said that the only re- reason Lionel Messi is in the Argentina squad is because he's a friend of Nico Gonzalez. Yeah, at this point, it might as well be. But Javier, what did you make of Argentina? This has been much better from Scaloni with maybe that Paraguay match aside. Like, and that's the key name, Scaloni, because he deserves a lot of credit of not falling into the pressure of what being the Argentina head coach is, right? So ever since that game against Ecuador, which Argentina was not impressive at all whatsoever, just what has really changed? Right, so you add Nico Gonzalez and you add Lo Celso, right? You take Ocampo out, and that's pretty much the same team, right? And even though taking Ocampo out is a or not having Ocampo in the equation is a risky proposition, the team is working. So instead of of doing a lot of changes all at the same time, like for example, four subs in the 40th minute, Escaloni has been progressively slowly taking just changing one thing here, one here, one thing there, and see what has been improving the team. Now we're seeing the best version of Argentina. Just like Adam mentioned, Messi could have scored two or three goals easy, right? And that's the second thing about Scaloni, right? So, I mean, that that he deserves credit for, is that the team, who's the best player of the team? Obviously, Lionel Messi. However, who were the best players at the game, right? Everything flowed through the opposite side of where Messi was, right? And when you have Messi, it's a difficult proposition for to tell him or the rest of the team, hey, we're going to use you as bait, and then we want to play through the opposite side. Because the left side was wide open. That's, that's where Nico made the party yesterday, right? So the flow, there was space. They used the space. Lo Celso moved wide to the left as well. And it was a brilliant game, brilliant flow of the ball, Great attacking movement, great attacking passes into the final third. Now, Peru, Peru had something to do with that because they were consistently out of shape. A uh, lot of space behind them, a lot of space on the wings. 
I agree. However, Argentina's flow of the ball had a lot to do with that. So I think that uh, even though there's a lot of things to highlight about Nico, uh, about Messi, about Lucelso, for sure, I want to state that Escaloni deserves a lot of credit of what we're seeing with Argentina right now. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. He does. couple of notes on Argentina before we wrap this up. Uh, they will be forced into a change in their next match. Nicolas Otamendi picked up a yellow card, so he will be suspended for that match. It will be very interesting to see this Argentina defense without Otamendi, Adam, and maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, I saw, I saw some Uruguayans I follow celebrating the fact that Otamendi is missing, uh, which I think tells uh, a story. And the next two matches for Argentina, very, very difficult. They will host Uruguay and visit Brazil, probably their two toughest matches. So I think that has kind of highlighted how good these performances have been. They're second in the table. They're on 10 points. And they've got themselves a little bit of sliding space so that when they come up against the best sides in this qualification cycle, which is Brazil, it could be Uruguay, it could be any host of of teams so far, they've got 10 points. They have a little bit of sliding space so that if things don't go great in March, they won't be playing from behind in the back part of this qualification cycle. They'll be right in the thick of things. And that's something I want to highlight as well as we wrap this podcast up. Where we sit right now, Brazil topped the table on 12 points. And as we said, we feel pretty confident about where they're at. We like where Argentina's at. They're in second place on 10 points. And Ecuador deserve a ton of credit for the start that they've made. They sit third with nine points. From there, Paraguay on six points are in fourth. Uruguay also on six points are in fifth, which is the playoff spot. Chile in Colombia, sixth and seventh with just four points. Venezuela's win has vaulted them into eighth with three points, just three points off of qualification. Peru and Bolivia bringing up the rear with one point each in ninth and tenth. This is a very, very tight table. And given what we've seen so far, it's not, it won't be a surprise to see that tightness continue as this qualification goes. And so any team that can get space at the top of that table, it's even more valuable given how we've seen teams kind of scratch and claw with each other. And Adam, this expects to be a really, really tight qualification cycle all the way down to the end. Yeah, I, I, I put out a tweet about Chile's record after four games in World Cup qualifying. You know, basically in 1998 when they qualified, in 2010 when they qualified, both those times they had four points after four games. In 2002 and 2006, which weren't particularly good campaigns, especially 2002, they also had four points after four games. Um, whereas the record amount of points Chile have ever got in World Cup qualifying after four games was for the 2018 cycle, where they had seven points, and we all know that they didn't qualify for that. So it's, it's basically impossible to say at the moment, either way, as to whether or not we can read a lot into just how well teams are performing at this stage. Four matches down, but still plenty, plenty to go, and the drama will be back in March. Well, big thank you to everybody on the panel for joining us on this week's show. I'd like to go around the table and get some plugs before we wrap this up. I'll start with Javier. Javier, where can the listeners find you on Twitter, and is there anything in particular you'd like to plug as we wrap this up? Well, at the moment, nothing to plug. Um, I'm at Twitter at ZAVXAV. Please come and join me to start singing some songs about Ecuador, like Quiero Amanecer Soñando. So please, I'll be there. Join me. 
<laughs> and Roberto, where can the listeners find you on Twitter? And is there anything that you would like to plug? No, yeah, man. Uh, thank you again for having me. Uh, it was it was a pleasure as always. Um, you could always follow me at Roberto Rojas ninety seven. Um, as you had mentioned in the beginning of my introduction, yes, you could follow as well my podcast Guarani Vision, the first ever podcast dedicated to Paraguayan football in English, where we will discuss this match, these matches, um, with you know my co-host Ralph Hanna, who obviously has also been on the show a couple times, and uh, Federico Perez and Maria Brito. So yeah, we'll definitely analyze everything that's going on in Paraguayan football, and and also you can take my other podcast, a little bit of football that you know we've had Adam, we've had Austin, um, both of you guys on before. So yeah, no, thank you again for having me. It was a pleasure, and hope to be on this very very soon. Jordan, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for bringing a perspective that, as I said before, we, we often find ourselves lacking here uh, on the podcast. Where can the listeners find you on Twitter? And is there anything specific that you'd like to plug? Uh, on Twitter, my personal account is the False Libero. Um, I also manage a Twitter account called Footway English, uh, which is dedicated to covering Venezuelan football in English, the domestic game, men's and women's, as well as the international game. Um, and as you said, at bringing the podcast, um, I've recently uh, had a book published on Venezuelan football called Red Wine and Arepas, How Football is Becoming Venezuela's Religion. Thank you very much for having me. And um, hopefully I can come back and talk about more Venezuelan success soon. Yarakuyanos. Yarakuyanos. Big squad. I like what they're doing so far. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, um, a France football journalist um, contacted me this week like wanting to to know more and if they qualify for Libertadores like they want to run a piece like yeah it's a it's a very interesting story it's specifically um interesting is that like last season technically they should have been in the third division um they were they were actually like mathematically relegated the only reason they were still in the second division last year is because um the the Venezuelan Football Federation expanded the second tier by two teams which saved them um and then obviously they went and got promoted to to the top flight and now they're they're potentially going to qualify for Libertadores and barring a complete catastrophe will will qualify for the Sudamericana. See that's the type of that's why we bring people like this on. Great stories, great stories. Great to have you Jordan. Thanks for being on the show and uh, we'll look to talk to you soon. Thank you very much for having me. And finally, Adam, where can the listeners find you on Twitter? And is there anything specifically that you'd like to plug? Well, first of all, I didn't realize that Javier had such a nice singing voice. We have to get him to do some more um, musical turns for us, I think, on this podcast. Um, you can find me on Twitter at AdamBrandon84. I would just say at the moment, check my check my Twitter feed. There's there's a few interesting things there, I think, for, for our listeners including sort of my best 11 so far in the Chilean Primera Division. Um, yeah, we're just over the halfway point in, in the Chilean league so far. And, um, and yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting players to, to look at who are under the age of 23 and coming through at the moment. So, yes, some promising signs there for Chile. We'll be sure to check that out. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore James 906. A couple of scouting spotlight podcasts should be out soon as well, breaking down Gabriel Menino and Julian Alvarez. Libertadores and Sudamericana football are back next week. The round of 16 gets underway. Plenty of tasty action to come your way there. 
the fun doesn't stop in South America and will continue to go on. And as I said, World Cup qualifiers back next March, and we will be here to break them down when they do. Thank you to everybody on the panel, to Adam, Javier, Roberto, and Jordan for joining me. Thank you to you, the listener. We know this podcast went on a bit, but we are certain that all of the information and everything that we brought to you was good. And we plenty of time to listen to it before the next. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You've got (laughs) until March. So plenty of time, like you said, Adam. Thank you to you, the listener, for choosing this podcast. All that's left for me to say is goodbye. Goodbye.